0: Welcome to Klet's Heads, the podcast about bilingual children. My name is Sharon Onsworth, linguist at Radboud University in Nijmegen, the Netherlands, a mother of two bilingual children. In this episode of Klet's Heads, we're talking about a topic we've not really discussed yet on the podcast, and that's well-being in bilingual families and how this relates to how much and how well children speak their heritage or home language. I also share with you our second Klet's Heads quick and easy. Keep listening to find out more. Children who grow up hearing two or more languages don't always end up actively using all their languages as they get older. In such cases, it's typically the heritage or minority or home language which suffers at the expense of the school language. As we heard in the last episode of Klet's when I spoke to my neighbour Kate, children may be perfectly capable of speaking the heritage language but prefer to use the language or languages spoken at school. In some cases, though, they might not be able to speak the heritage language well enough in order to express themselves properly, This isn't only a great source of frustration for parents who may feel disappointed and in some cases rejected by their child's inability or unwillingness to use their native language. But it can also make communication quite difficult. And parents may sometimes switch to speaking the school language in order to be able to communicate with their child, even though in some cases they themselves may not be very proficient in that language. All of this can have a negative impact on the relationship between parent and child and on children's well-being. This is the topic we're talking about in this episode of Clet's Heads. What is the impact of children's use and knowledge of the heritage language on family well-being? To answer this question, I'm joined by two researchers from the University of Cambridge in the UK. Dr. Elspeth Wilson and Professor Napoleon Katsos. I started by asking Elspeth what we mean when we're talking about well-being.
1: Generally, people talk about it in two ways. Um, Objective well-being or objective measures of well-being and subjective. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, objective measures of well-being are things like measures of physical health, psychological health, um, kind of security, job um, opportunities, education, things like that. Um, so they're obviously mm-hmm. factors that contribute to well-being um, and subjective well-being is, is people's perceived life satisfaction um, and that's what we're kind of interested in and what we're mainly going to be talking about today.
0: In Dutch we have this really nice phrase for that it's uh, you say
1: "lekker in your fell so you're feeling comfy in your skin. Mm, exactly um, the PISA study which um, listeners may have heard of it's a kind of uh, big international um, survey of um, children and, and their education they asked a few years ago in 2015 about well-being and they basically asked to students to rate their life satisfaction on a scale of naught to 10 where naught mm-hmm. um, means they've got the worst possible life and 10 means the best possible life um, and so that's what we mean of course you can go into different aspects of that um, and people do and it's also worth mentioning it's not the same as mental health so well-being and mental health are, are separate things right actually they don't necessarily correlate very strongly and there do seem to be different factors that to kind of feed into each one um and so yeah today when we're talking about growing up with more than one language and well-being we're very much talking about life satisfaction kind of happiness um rather yeah. than the mental health
0: okay that's good to know because i think Uh, intuitively you might think the two are associated Mm. uh, with each other so it's interesting to know that they're not so when it comes then to communication between children and parents or just within the family more generally what what is the role of communication in well-being and and why is this particularly relevant then to
1: bilingual families yeah well communication is massive for well-being so various surveys I've already mentioned PISA um, there's a Children's Well Survey. We have something in the UK called the Good Childhood Report that comes out every year. They've identified like the main factors that help people have a high level of well-being, or particularly children. And three of the factors that um, the Good Childhood Report um, sort of identified are the self, learning, and relationships. Now, mm-hmm. I think as sort of multilingual people and families, if we hear self, learning and relationships, we can probably immediately begin to think of ways those connect with learning more than one language or using more than one language. Yep. Obviously, self also to do with our identity in, in speaking more than one language or having two or more cultures or heritages. The opportunity to learn more than one language is, is a unique learning opportunity. Um, and then those relationships, that's where the communication comes in. So better peer relationships, better particularly child-parent relationships leads to better well-being. Um, Again, PISA found that um, those young people who just sat and had a meal every day or most days with their parents and had that opportunity to Mm -hmm. talk had higher levels of well-being. So communication really is key. Well, how does this connect to to growing up bilingually? So in the bilingual context, it's not just... um, the communication, but how you communicate that's at stake. Yeah, not just the kind of quality and the content of, you know, what you're saying, how you're communicating, um, but actually which language you choose to communicate in.
0: Right. So if if you're sitting around the table, having your meal, then there's an extra element then if you're you're bilingual families, what
1: what language are you using to talk about what happened during the day? Exactly. Um, And this can be a kind of source of positive uh, well-being um, kind of can benefit people's well-being it can aid those relationships and feed into life satisfaction or it can also we'll talk about a bit later be a source of tension in the family and actually take away from that that feeling of well-being it's worth mentioning a kind of term that um, Anita Howard has coined for this kind of phenomenon yeah she um, talks about harmonious bilingualism Basically, what she means by that is the experience of well-being in a language contact situation when children are growing up learning more than one language. Um, But harmonious bilingualism kind of encapsulates that idea um, that how you use language um, can positively um, feed into your well-being.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay so we can definitely see then and I'm sure listeners will recognize that, that there's going to be some potential role for the languages that that you and your child use uh, when it comes to your your child's well-being and the relationship that you have with your child um I mentioned in the introduction just then that when children's proficiency in the in the minority or heritage language when that remains limited and they, and they essentially switch to the school language which we know many children do, um, that this can have a negative effect on the relationship with the children. Is that actually right? What, what does the research available on that topic say, uh, Napoleon? What effects do we see?
2: Yeah, um, we did a scoping review with this question uh, in, in the back of our, of my, of our mind. Um, the review was done by a number of uh, researchers, Lisa Maria Muller, Katie Howard, Jenny Gibson, Elspeth um, and I, uh, looked at the research that has been done up to 2020 and we yeah. found 17 studies that had looked at the relationship between language-using bilingual families and the family's well-being. Now out of these 17 studies, 10 of them were concerned with the bilingual families in the USA uh, and mm-hmm. the rest took place in countries such as Australia, Israel, Finland and the UK. So to be honest, relatively speaking, given how much attention bilingualism has attracted as a field, one can see that there isn't a great volume of research on the topic yet, uh, and also the majority Mm -hmm. of this research is very much on Western contexts. But given these limitations still, there were some very clear and very robust findings. Uh, Maintaining the minority language and learning the society's dominant language together are positively associated with good family relationships and with child well-being. And specifically as regards the children's knowledge of the minority language, higher proficiency in it is associated with improved family cohesion, with less emotional stress in children and parents, and with psychosocial um, balance and and harmony.
0: Can I just ask you, what, what does psychosocial balance and harmony mean? What do we mean by that?
2: psychosocial means less experience of negative emotions and better mm-hmm. interpersonal relations. Now, I have to say, you know, there's a lot of heterogeneity in this research. Different studies use different ways of measuring what is well-being. Some focused more on the emotional aspect of it, some uh, focused more on the interpersonal relations. So we are using these terms quite broadly, Sharon, to be honest. Uh, yeah. But let me give you a specific example, right? Because You know, this um, uh, gives you a sense of uh, the the findings out there. Uh, Cheng and Fulini studied 620 children and adolescents with an East Asian, Filipino, or Latin American background living in the USA. So all of them are in the same kind of context, uh, speaking broadly the USA, but they come from very different um, uh, backgrounds. Now, children and adolescents who spoke their parents' native language and used it to communicate with the parents reported higher levels of family cohesion and less emotional distance between themselves and the parents than the children and adolescents who only spoke English. Uh, And those who spoke in different languages with the parents, so the, the cases where the children would speak in English and the parents would speak in the minority language, they reported less cohesion and actually also less discussion, less quantity of discussion with the parents than the peers who spoke the same language with the parents. So we've got these positive associations between knowing and using the minority language and family relationships. And something that comes out from this study and the other ones we've looked at, that these positive relations exist regardless of the family's ethnic and demographic backgrounds. These relations seem to be general across all kinds of bilingual experience.
0: So so it doesn't, doesn't matter which language you talk in, which particular community community that you belong to uh you know it, your yeah. cultural heritage as it were or, yes. or where you live seems to be the case that as long as if the kids speak both languages yes speak both languages well yeah um can i say that speak both languages well or just as if there's communication going on in those languages is that the
2: key oh uh, that's a great uh, that's a great question um can i just say one more thing i'll, I'll come right to this sharon but i want to say yeah We, we, we can't yet sort of like say which, what is causing what, you know, what is driving this relationship, right? Because we've just sort of said that the report clearly shows that maintaining the and using the minority language is associated with better relations between the family and associated with feelings of mutual respect among family members, less tension, less stress. But it could be that maintaining the family language leads to better relations with the family. But it could also be that families with better interpersonal relations foster the right kind of environment for the children to maintain the family language.
0: Right, uh, right.
2: Frankly, Sharon, though I don't have the evidence, it could be a bit of both, really.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's that's something that we simply don't know from the research uh, uh, right right yeah, now. So yeah. there's plenty of scope for for more research. Yeah. I was wondering yeah. as well: is it is it you know is it really about the heritage language? The kids using the heritage language, or is it just about the fact that they need to have a language that the parents and children speak equally well, and so they can have the yeah. have a good relationship? Yeah,
2: yeah, uh, Sharon, that, that's that's a great question, um, and both can be important. And and I'll, I'll, on the one hand, having a common language, whichever that language is, is definitely key because that enables meaningful communications and interactions of the sort that Elspeth talked that lead to well being. Right. But on top of that, for many families, it has particular value if the children can speak the minority language well. And of course, this has also got wider implications for um, well-being because the minority language specifically opens up the communications with the extended family and with understanding yeah. cultural heritage, etc. You know, having acknowledged that for some families, it's really important to use the minority language at home. Something that I'd like to say is that sometimes uh, being flexible flexibly using the minority language and the dominant language in different conversations is a great way forward. Uh, now, something that I find fascinating is that there's even evidence in research that depending on the topic that is being discussed, it may be better to use a different language for different kinds of discussions within the family. So uh, Chen and colleagues report that some bilingual parents use different languages with the children when discussing uh, uh, issues related to emotion. And for uh-huh. emotionally loaded topics, using the society's dominant language may lead to more open discussions of sensitive and contentious issues. And this is because the researchers hypothesized the society's dominant language is less emotionally loaded for the parents compared to the first language. So we know by from research into emotion that the first language is really, really important because this is the language through which you conceptualize and you experience the emotions in the early years. But having a very emotionally loaded and difficult conversation in the other language, in the society dominant language, might actually lead to more open discussions.
0: Mm, That's really interesting.
2: I find this, yeah, a fascinating insight because it suggests that you could be flexible about which language to use um, in the family.
0: Yeah. 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 And I think it's also, I, I think many parents appreciate, and I know I I, I do too, this idea that the there aren't these hard and fast rules necessarily, right? So there, there are these guidelines and sometimes you do indeed need to be flexible. Um, what about, uh, do, do we know then, so going back to the relationship between um, children's language use and uh, particularly of the heritage language and their relationship with their parents and their well-being more generally, is it is it really the use of the language or is it the ability to be able to speak at their proficiency? Yeah. Do we know if there's a difference between the two? Yeah. Because, you know, people, yeah. kids can, they know how to use it, but they just don't.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question, Sharon. And um, it's not easy to tell from the current research that we reviewed um, which is the most important factor here. Right. Um, there is one interesting study by Owen Fulini, um, who, who, who found that, uh, it wasn't so much the active use of a home language, but rather the children's knowledge of it. So the proficiency, which was important. That is, you know, knowing the language was more important for positive parent-child relationships than actually using that language all the time, which is really interesting and makes you think, um, This could be because the knowledge of the language leads to greater acceptance of the parents' values or understanding of the heritage culture or understanding of the identity, which then contributes to good family relationships, even if the children are not using that language all the time when they communicate with the parents.
0: Yeah, but that's one study, right? And so I think it's fair to say we don't entirely know the answer yeah. to that question, right? And Absolutely. and what about the child's age then? Does that matter? Because I know quite a few of the studies are with younger kids, but there are also a few with adolescents, which we know is a uh, kids are developing in many different ways. And that can be times right. where they do or don't feel so happy or not about themselves. Elspeth, do we know anything about that?
1: Yeah, age is a really important factor, of course. And the family language policy. So. Um, what you do with your languages in your family and why is a dynamic thing it changes over time Um, and one obvious factor I know you've talked about on this podcast before is you're starting nursery or starting school and suddenly um, the children using the society language or the school language much more um, forming those important peer relationships with friends so yeah age really feeds into how languages are being used, and then you know, we assume what effect this is having in the family in terms of those relationships, in terms of the well being. Last year actually we did um a study during lockdown. Mm. Um there's a first phase of the pandemic um when everyone was really staying at home, um, you know, homeschooling, homeworking, etc. Um, so this study was led by um Ludovica yep. at the University of Reading. Um, along with colleagues from various universities across the uh, UK and Ireland, we found generally that actually well-being associated with with home language use was, was generally quite high, and tension was generally quite low um, in, in the families that responded. Um, there was there was one interesting thing that um there was some association of like higher levels of tension in the family um regarding the use of the home language when their parents are parents of primary school age right. children um, compared to preschoolers and secondary school age children. And do you have any idea why, why that is? I would think you know, that is a really key age where, you know, your language identity is being um, kind of formed um, and where children are having to use the school language, you know, kind of full time for the first yeah. time but then of course they were being homeschooled at home and they were they're used to probably at that stage talking in the home language minority language with their parents so immediately that's a kind of um, situation of tension isn't it because they've got those two kind of language worlds colliding of school and, and the homes, you know, the school language and home. And then when you put the two together and you're homeschooling, um, that could be one of the reasons, you know, when parents are having to think about, um, this was something else that came out in interviews, you know, which language do you use for homeschooling, for example? Um, yeah. Sometimes it's easier to use the language that, you um, the work comes home in, (laughs) but sometimes you want to use your home language because, you know, you feel more comfortable in that. That's the language that you learnt in at school, for example. Um, so this was a kind of big new thing that families were having to negotiate. And I guess how well they did that would have then fed into you know, how they were able to kind of flourish yeah. as a multilingual family during that time. Yeah.
0: We still have plans for a special episode where we discuss research on the impacts of the lockdown on bilingual families, including the project Elspeth just mentioned. So you should hear more about that soon. We're going to leave Elspeth and Napoleon now for our second heads quick and easy. A concrete tip that you can put to use straight away to make a success of the bilingualism in your family, class or clinic. Klet's Heads, quick and easy. In Clet's Heads, we talk a lot about how important it is for children to have as rich a language exposure as possible. Being exposed to enough input and to different kinds of input is especially important for the heritage language or languages. So the languages that are not used at school or in the wider community. It's also important that children find themselves in situations where they have to use their heritage language if you want them to become active users of that language. This can sometimes be tricky if you as a parent also understand the majority language in the country where you live. The Kletzheads quick and easy this time then is for parents, and it's to find one new source of language input in the heritage language. Maybe you know another family in the neighbourhood who speaks the same language. Get in touch with them and arrange a play date. If you'd like your child to learn to read in your language, find out if there's a heritage language school in your area and contact them or even sign your child up already. If you have friends in your home country who also have children, why not ask them if their son or daughter would like a pen friend? Writing letters is, of course, rather old fashioned and not really necessary. But who doesn't like to receive post dropping through the letterbox? You can see if your local library has any books in your language or if you want to read to your child, look for picture books where you can tell the story yourself in any language or find out if there are podcasts for children in your language. In short, the Kletz heads quick and easy for this episode is to do one thing: to find a new source of input in the language that your child needs most. Kletz heads quick and easy. So the the language that you choose to use as a child, or or as an adult, for that matter, can can also say something about how comfortable you feel with the culture associated with that language, right? Whether you identify with the speakers of that language. And parents raising their children bilingually, especially I think in a context where there's a predominant language and culture, often comment on how, how their children are more American than they are Korean or more Dutch than they are Turkish or more French than they are Moroccan. Right. And so for some parents, that's, that's just the way it is and they're fine with it but for others it's it can be a real source of tension and frustration so we often call this acculturation right so that you become and you know you become part of of the dominant culture can these differences between parents and children can they impact on their well-being as well? do we see that and is it related to language use
1: yes definitely um exactly as you say acculturation is this Um, kind of process the extent to which someone identifies with the majority culture the society culture Um, and um, when you think about acculturation obviously the language you use and your kind of identity connected to that language and played a massive part so it's very much connected to what we've been talking about already especially you know what Nap was uh, talking about earlier Um, so as you might expect by now it does seem that um, acculturation and language use and language knowledge pattern together and, and feed into well being. So, I'll just give you a, another example of that really. So, a study, couple of studies by Choi and colleagues, um, again, this is in the US, and they looked at um, Korean American teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they found that a positive attitude towards the home culture or the minority culture, so the Korean culture in that case um was associated with enhanced well-being so there you've got the kind of not just positive attitudes towards the language and use of language but actually you know towards the culture um led to enhanced well-being as well but um I thought that was really interesting in that study was the fact that where parents were actually more active in teaching about the home culture so maybe just like talking about Korean cultural values or going to a community school um the young people's English proficiency was actually better as well Um, and again this is just association it's not causal of course there could be all sorts of reasons for this but it, it does seem to suggest that you know passing on that cultural heritage is not necessarily at the expense of learning the society's language the school language and its culture like the two things can go together and actually you know can help each other as the child grows
0: Right. So it doesn't have to be one or, or the other. You don't have to be American or Korean or Dutch or Turkish or, or whatever. That it, It's perfectly possible to grow up feeling as though you're both. I'm hoping we'll have a separate episode on identity at, at some point. What, what what should parents take away from our discussion today? So what, what concrete tips do you have for them when it comes to ensuring their child's well-being as they grow up bilingually? Looking at the yeah. bigger
2: picture, we, we, we know that well-being in the family is related to relationships within the family members, to communication. Um, and this is something we can all work on. There's always scope for improving, for, um, uh, and, and for you know, uh, uh, and helping improve well-being. It's not something that's set in stone once and uh, uh, you can't work on it. We, we've seen how um, you know, having a common language that every member of the family can use to, to communicate is important. We've seen that children having at least some proficiency in the minority language is related to better communication, better relationships, respect, acceptance, less tensions. So, you know, we're given ways forward for, uh, you know, having yeah. a better quality uh, of life. Uh, overall, I'd say the main message to, to, to parents, um, to, to, to myself, uh, <laughs> that I take out of the review and many others might want to take, is to, to talk about talking. To to communicate in the family about how each member feels, about the languages that they have and how they use them, Um, and we should really be mindful of that. That you know, having a family language policy isn't something that happens necessarily by itself. Um, Mm. It really takes um, some effort and some conscious attempt to communicate and discuss. And then you know, once you set a, a certain, you have your expectations and they're mutually shared. One needs to review them uh, regularly and to be uh, realistic. Uh, I, I think here on the Kletch Head series, this is a question that, you, you know, you, you, it's a great resource for questions like this. I know in the first episode of the Kletch Head series uh, with uh, you and Chrisfield, um, yeah. we had this discussion. Um, uh, in our group in Cambridge, Elspeth and colleagues and I, we too have developed an online resource uh, which gives tips uh, on how parents can mm-hmm. talk about this and how they can set expectations uh, about how to use their languages um, even before the baby arrives, because we we also worked with expecting families and antenatal teachers, um, and we wanted to sort of get out there this idea that bilingualism might not happen by itself. You need to talk and consider and plan for it. Uh, parents who listen who want to uh, you know find more about this they, they can Google we speak multi. Uh, our website is com, uh, and it has information for parents but also for teachers of bilingual students for antenatal practitioners and um, other professionals who work with bilinguals
0: okay uh, we'll put the link to that in the in the show notes so that people people can, uh, can find it right,
2: right.
0: Um, so basically talk about why the the, the heritage language is important yeah. and talk about how how are how you how you're going to give it a place in your family, I suppose, would be, maybe be a good way of talking about
2: it. Absolutely. And then, you know, always create yeah. that common ground and that, that mutual, uh, those mutual expectations, because your expectations and your desires might not be 100% aligned to those of the other members. And that's a very dynamic process. You know, you have to construct your, your family policy, so to speak. I think different families will find their own ways to navigate this uh, in my family, we're looking for, you know, creating natural, natural situations where, you know, naturally you'd have to uh, use the home language, talk to pa- grandparents who use Greek. Uh, in my case, we try to listen to some Greek music. Um, if we can find a movie that the kids like, um, uh, we can, we can put it on uh, uh, through different media can ac- actually get you the, the movie in um, in Greek you know we use greek in a way that's not imposing and and doesn't feel very very school like we also i mean we also have a weekly fight when it comes to actually doing a little bit of um, formal education in greek and that's something that you know my wife and i really want to monitor we we we, we can see how it could become too pushy for our for, for our 9 year old um and, and we, we just need to monitor it and make sure that, you know, we, we, we don't lose completely the fun of what um, of, yeah. we wouldn't yeah. want to do. We wouldn't want to get at yeah. that point.
0: But that's, you know, in a sense, it's also like many other things, right? You know, practicing your piano or going to football, you know, all, there's always that fine line as a parent between pushing enough because, you know, you just have to learn, you need to practice and do stuff, but not doing it so much that uh, the kids don't like it anymore. But I guess there's also that extra dimension when it comes to your own cultural heritage that you don't have when it's playing the piano or or football. Um so we talked a bit there about tips for, for parents. What about teachers, Elspeth? Do you have any tips for teachers for how they should approach bilingual children and their parents, given the issues that we've talked about today about well-being?
1: Yeah, I yeah. mean, really it's the same message of like talk about talking. Um, so, you know, I say to teachers or other kind of professionals, you know, ask the family um, or you know, the caregivers what their family language plan is don't necessarily use the words what's your family language plan but just ask questions like oh you know so what languages do you use at home um mm. you know, what what would you like for your child especially if it's a younger child you know would you like them to to just understand the language speak the language or maybe even learn to read and write in the language if that's appropriate uh for that situation you know ask about whether the charge is going to a, a kind of complementary school, a Saturday school um, for that language, um, or some kind of other extracurricular activity club, um, and kind of being supportive of that involvement, and so just you know showing an interest in a way that's encouraging and supportive, and in doing that, just highlighting you know the benefits of those family languages um, and growing up with more than one language um, and. The opportunity that is for, for learning and for passing on the, the family kind of culture and, and heritage. Of course, there's, you know, more practical things that teachers can do as well. Um, so if possible, you know, they could signpost to,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, local, uh, resources for languages. I don't know what it would be like, uh, where, where you are, but certainly in the UK, we have a growing number of kind of multilingual libraries or sections in libraries, multilingual, um, clubs or groups. Um, so, you know, if if teachers in, in schools can signpost to those extra resources, that sends a really strong message that this is something um, that's worth doing. And also shows the parents or it tells the parents that actually fostering the home language doesn't detract necessarily from um, learning the school language. And actually, as the parents grow the home language in their family and you know, teach, read to the child in that language, um, talk about all sorts of different topics in that language that can actually have a positive impact yeah. on their um, school language as well. Um, so they don't necessarily have to switch. And so if the teachers can can just talk about that with the parents, I think um, that's a really good start.
0: Yeah so it's helping the parents actually make that investment for the future mm, yeah. uh, for their child's for their child's well-being.
2: Can I, can I add to that? I think what's really important is to simply not not jump into conclusions about what the family language policy will be. It's important to encourage the parents to have it, but to be open-minded. Let's not have barriers that bilingualism is for these families, but the bilingualism is not for those families or is not for those children. Um, let's just encourage people to have these discussions and considerations and come up with their own conclusions.
0: Thank you very much uh, for taking the time to talk to us today. It's all been very interesting. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you,
2: Sharon.
0: In this episode of Heads, we learned that communication is a key factor when it comes to family well-being. In bilingual families, there's often a choice about which language can be used for communication. And whilst there's not a vast amount of research on this topic, the research that is available shows that when children are able to use the heritage or minority language, this is associated with better well-being. There's some research suggesting that it's knowing the language rather than actively using it, which is key, but much more research is needed in order to confirm this. We also heard that when children have a positive attitude to home culture, this is also associated with better well-being. And this doesn't come at the expense of learning the school language or culture. It can be both, not either or. All the more reason then to follow up on today's Kletzheads Quick and Easy. Find one new source of heritage language input for your child. Give it a go and let us know how you get on. You can do that by the socials, us at cletseds or drop us a line via the website or send us an email at cletseds at We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode where in hot off the press, I tell you about recent research that asks what's more important when it comes to learning two languages in childhood, starting earlier or hearing enough input we hear from our first Klet's from the continent of Africa when I speak to 13-year-old Ria Both about growing up with three languages. If you haven't done so already, hit subscribe in your podcast app or by following the links on the website and the new episode will be ready and waiting for you in two weeks time. Until then... To know more about Clet's Heads, go to our website at clet'sheadspodcast.org. That's where you'll also find more information about this episode. If you want to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Clet's Heads using your favourite podcast app. If you know someone else who might enjoy the podcast, then I'd really appreciate it if you would share it with them. You can do this via the website or in your podcast app. And if you're on social media, we'd love it if you followed us. Our handle is at Kletzheads. Thanks for listening and until the next time, or as we say in Dutch, tot de volgende keer.